Hello and welcome to Data Radicals. In today's episode, Satyan sits down with fellow data radical Tim Harford. Tim is a self-proclaimed nerd storyteller and brings data-driven stories to the masses. In this episode, he shares how using data will put you ahead of the curve, how to foster a spirit of curiosity around data, and shares real-world examples of change in action. This podcast is brought to you by Experian and our data quality solutions. At Experian, our top priority is helping thousands of business users and their data stewards unlock the power of their data. Our solutions allow you to analyze, enrich, profile, validate, and standardize your organization's data to transform it into a reliable asset. Our clients tell us that trustworthy data has supercharged their data governance programs, improving ROI, collaboration, performance, and security. Get started at edq.com slash free dash trial. Today on Data Radicals, we're joined by Tim Harford. Tim is an economist, journalist, and broadcaster. He's the author of How to Make the World Add Up, or The Data Detective, Messy, and The Million Book-Selling Undercover Economist. Tim is a senior columnist at the Financial Times and the presenter of the BBC Radio's More or Less, How to Vaccinate the World, and 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, as well as the podcast and my personal favorite, Cautionary Tales. Tim has spoken at TED, PopTech, and the Sydney Opera House. He's a member of the Nuffield College at Oxford and an honorary fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. And he was awarded an Order of the British Empire for services to improve economic understanding in the New Year's honors of 2019. Tim, welcome to Data Radicals. Oh, it's my pleasure to be on the show. So it's great to see you again. And I'd love to spend as much about this podcast talking about you and how you do your work as we do the work itself, because I think you do the style of work that many of our audience members aspire to do, which is to sort of unearth really interesting insights and then to present them out in a way that captivates people's imaginations. So let's start with you. You're a writer, a journalist, a broadcaster, an economist, a podcaster. How do you describe yourself? I generally would go for something like nerd storyteller. I don't know if that's the best description. I mean, I trained as an economist rather than as a data scientist or a statistician or indeed as a journalist. But I'm a communicator. I I write, but I write in different media. So I write books. I've just finished my 10th book. I write newspaper columns and I write radio scripts. And then having written the radio scripts, I guess I also have to read the radio scripts into the microphone. So I'm a radio guy and I'm a print guy, but I suppose nerd storyteller covers most of it because I am pretty nerdy and I am fascinated by stories. And do you write all of your own scripts for everything that you produce and are a part of? Are you able to to generate all of that content yourself? No, not everything. So I write all my columns. I write my books. Cautionary Tales is written with a colleague, very old friend of mine called Andrew Wright who people will hear him credited at the end of each cautionary tale. We pretty much split it up. So he will just write some of the scripts and I will write other scripts and then we'll edit each other's scripts. So that that's the division of labor there, which works pretty well. And then with more or less the BBC radio program, that's more complex because I will get chunks of script for items on the show from reporters, from producers, and they will be in, in very different states of repair. So some of them are very rough. Some of them are, depending on the experience of the reporter, some of them are not very good. Some of them are brilliant. Some of them are absolutely perfect. And you know, you just work on them and 
try to get them into a consistent form with a more or less voice. But that sometimes requires absolutely no effort from me at all. And sometimes uh, I, I occasionally find myself thinking, I wish I'd, I wish I'd written this right from the start because it would have been easier. But that's what working in a team is like. And part of the job there is, and part of the joy of it, is to be able to work with people who who produce work that you just think, I could never have done this myself. This is brilliant. And also to be mentoring more junior members of staff and advising them and showing them the edits that you're making and talking to them about why you're, why you're making it, which is not easy. I was used to, always used to originally just work by myself on my own scripts, but you know, I try to get better at that. Yeah. Writing is obviously a craft and you've certainly had the ability to practice that craft. As I looked through your work, one of the things that I really appreciated was how prolific you are and how many different stories you get. And it sounds like, can you tell us a little bit about the story acquisition process? Because I would imagine some of it you get directly, some of it's brought to you. How do you know when something's a good story and how do you know when you've got something great? It does depend a lot on the medium. So for a newspaper column, it's often a question I have in my mind or I'm having a conversation with somebody and I'll, you know, we'll be talking about something and I'll think, oh, that would be, that's a good, that's an interesting distinction or, oh, there's, that's a question that's on people's minds and so that, it will come like that. For more or less, on BBC Radio 4, almost all of it is generated by our listeners. They will ask us questions and we'll try and answer them. And that's very powerful because it starts with the question very often I think that data journalism starts either with how can we plot a cute graph or there's a fact-checking element. How can we debunk this stupid thing that somebody said? And both of those are important. But I think to start with a question is the most powerful thing of all. And then for Cautionary Tales, Cautionary Tales, for those who don't know, is a podcast about things going wrong, stories of things going wrong, and the lessons that we can learn from those disasters. So, I mean, that's very simple. I just have my eye out for disasters. These these are historical incidents. So they're often very well documented. They might be 10 years old, 100 years old, some of them even older than that. And it, what I'm looking for there is not so much the story, because the story itself is often fairly obvious. It's the, the twist or the surprise or maybe the connection between one story and another that gives it some extra richness and depth. Do you have any particular work that you are particularly proud of or really proud that you've done over your career? Is there one work that if there was nothing else somebody could take from the P- Tim Harford compendium, they should look up and read? Well, actually, you asked two different questions there, one of which is, what should people pick up? And the other is, what am I most proud of? I did. Then They're not necessarily the same question. I would suggest maybe people, if they wanted to pick something up, start with Cautionary Tales. Grab, a, grab an episode of Cautionary Tales and have a listen. And the last half an hour, I think they're good stories. There's a lot to offer and um, I'm really enjoying them. But that's not the work I'm proudest of. The work I think I'm proudest of is the work I did with a team from more or less, which was very much a team effort during the pandemic. And in particular, during the first lockdowns in the UK, which were basically April, May 2020. And we all have our own memories of what was happening there in different places, but all across the world, everybody was affected. And we had just been moved to a more prominent slot in the radio schedule 
on Radio 4. And radio listening is very, your audience is very influenced by what time you're broadcasting. It makes all the difference. And uh, so we'd had some meetings and we were talking about how we were going to, what we were going to do with this new slot. It was all very exciting. And uh, it was going to start, I think, in late April. And then we just got the call, can you get on air next week? Can you go immediately? This is a number story. Everybody wants to know what's going on. We're all confused by the data. And so that there was this scramble in a much more prominent spot that, than we'd ever been before by a team who were trying to work mostly under duvets from home. I was working under a duvet from home, although my producer and the studio engineer were going into to the office. They were regarded as essential workers. We, you know, we were like physicians and nurses and firefighters and, and people working in food. We were, you know, we were regarded as doing essential journalism, which sort of simultaneously felt a bit absurd. And then you thought, well, no, maybe this is important. And we were just trying to make sense of what was happening to everybody and give people an anchor and maybe some kind of compass as to where this was all going. And it was, it sounds strange because of course it was a very traumatic time for many people, a very frightening time, but there was something refreshing about the fact that people actually wanted to understand the world using numbers, coming from some very vitriolic and divisive political campaigns where numbers only ever seemed to be a propaganda. And no one would actually pay any attention to numbers. They just thought, well, it's just, it's just more people trying to sell me ideas that I don't believe in. And that, that changed briefly. People wanted to understand this new thing, and they realized the data were, were the way that they were going to do that. And I still bump into people who tell me that just listening to that series of radio programs, which last we broadcast every week for about three months, which was much longer than we would normally do, and just listening to that really helped to center them and keep them going in the most extraordinarily confusing time. Right, because in those confusing times, people are looking for truth and some mooring. And this gave them facts over ideology or some you know, mythical explanation as to what was happening or why. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to forget now, but at the time, we didn't know the most basic things about this virus. In particular, we didn't know how dangerous it was. We didn't know how fast it spread. We didn't know who was most at risk. There was a theory out there that turned out to be wrong, but was not absurd that maybe lots of people had been had already been exposed but hadn't had symptoms, so it was just like a cold, and therefore maybe it would all soon be over. And I think a lot of people embraced that theory because it, it felt like very good news. And just trying to answer these really basic questions, like how many cases have there been? How many cases result in death? This long COVID thing that people are starting to talk about, how do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of that after three months? Because there isn't time to really get a feeling of what long COVID might even be. We didn't know the answers to any of those questions. And just trying to figure that out in real time, doing our best with limited data was, it felt like uh, important work. And of course, we were not the ones doing the work, but we were the ones trying to help people access that work and understand what was going on. Yeah, this is um, such a great story because it's one of the things that makes me believe. So we have this podcast, uh, Data Radicals, which is all about spreading data culture and how people uh, are able to sort of proselytize, if you will, the religion of data inside of their companies. And 
if that's what they're trying to do, one of the things that struck me is that when people tell these stories about how they were able to drive change, often they're doing so in moments of crisis. It's not the sort of day-to-day report that reports the news that gets people to change and pay attention to data or change their habits. It often is these sort of pivotal moments where data is introduced at a time where people either didn't know that they wanted it or didn't know they could get it. Is that something that you've seen in your reporting as well? No, I think that's right. And I think, but I think that's a real shame because of course, if it's the moment of crisis is the moment where you suddenly say we need some data, then it's too late, really. I mean, in the, in the case of the pandemic, m- most of the data that we would have wanted, there was no way we could have collected it anyway. But there were a lot of elements to that where we just had very, very poor numbers, very poor statistics. And that suddenly became a serious weakness. For example, so Alexis Madrigal, who was spearing a volunteer data effort in the US, told me that didn't actually know how many hospitals there were in the US. Didn't know how many hospitals there were in the US. So that's a really, that's a basic question. In the UK, we didn't know how many people were receiving nursing care. And nursing homes were, of course, highly vulnerable to the virus is where a lot of the deaths occurred. And there was just no centralized database. If you don't know how many people are receiving the care, it's really hard to know how to reach them, how to protect them. So these are quite basic things. On the other hand, there are examples of really heroic efforts to gather the data in an awful hurry. So one of the ones that I describe in The Data Detective, I think in the paperback edition of the soft cover edition of Data Detective because it because of the timing was the recovery trial. So the recovery trial was set up in the UK. And the, the idea came on a bus journey across London between a conversation between a couple of scientists on a bus journey in February 2020, saying, look at the look at what's happening in Italy. You can see the TV footage coming out of Italy. We've seen the footage coming out of Wuhan. Something terrible's coming. And what will happen is intensive care all over the world will be swamped. And physicians all over the world will do their best. They'll try stuff that they hope might work. And then some of the patients will die and some of the patients will pull through and nobody will really have gathered enough data to know whether any of this stuff is working. And so the idea of the recovery trial was to be very systematic about collecting the data as patients came into UK hospitals, it's all part of the National Health Service. So it's if you can talk to the right person, you pull the right lever, you can make it happen. So anybody coming into a UK hospital with COVID, with the consent would be sought either from the patient or from their family to sign them up for a randomized trial, very simple randomized trial, and they would receive a promising treatment chosen at random. And because of the number of people coming into hospital and because of how quickly the disease progresses, it was just a matter of weeks before we had answers. So we found out, for example, hydroxychloroquine, a lot of talk about it, some promising initial results, turns out doesn't work. Dexamethasone, the steroid, works extremely well. And it's super cheap. And, you know, you can afford it almost anywhere in the world. You can afford dexamethasone. It's easy to make. So these are findings that saved probably a million lives in the first year of the pandemic, probably three, four, five million since then. And it was just a case of thinking, how do we 
get systematic about collecting data in an awful hurry. They did that, they got the numbers. And I just think that's, that's just a fantastic effort and an example to us all. If you're even a few weeks ahead of the curve, you can really make a difference to the quality of decision-making. Yeah, and I think for that reason, I would, look, I think, I think you don't necessarily as an analyst or as a practitioner with data have the ability to control whether there's an environment of crisis or not, but you certainly have the ability to choose how you react. And I think in a lot of these moments, these can be opportunities for people who are enterprising or, um, you know, want to drive some form of change and use the sort of tactics of a crisis to invest in the infrastructure that is harder to gather. So tell us about, you, you mentioned Data Detective, and tell us about what motivated you to write the book and how you came up with the idea. Sure. And you correctly gave it two titles at the beginning of the podcast, so I should just clarify. So in the US and Canada, and also Guam, as it happens, it is called The Data Detective. Elsewhere, so the UK, Ireland, Australia, India, South Africa, it's called How to Make the World Add Up. The Data Detective, How to Make the World Add Up, same book. So please don't buy both copies. Or if you do buy both copies, thanks very much. But please don't get cross with me that you've paid for the same book twice. So that's the book. It's a book about how to think about the world using numbers. So a friend of mine said, oh, you've written this book about how to think about numbers. And I said, no, it's a book about how to think. Numbers are just a tool that helps you think. And there were really two things that I wanted to do. One was to build a positive case for numbers, which sounds strange, but actually when you think of the number of statistics books that are published, popular statistics books, that are basically all about statistical mistakes. And so I, I thought that's that's telling. But it's a perception people have of my radio show, more or less. Oh, they're oh well, that that show where you debunk all those false statements by politicians. Yeah, we do that. But also we are trying to explain the world. So that was one thing. A constructive view that numbers can be used to understand the world and to help make better decisions and to help communicate ideas. They are not just a vector for misinformation. They can be a vector for misinformation, but that is not the only thing that they are. The second thing that I wanted to do was to be psychologically realistic about this. I can give you all the technical advice in the world about correlation and causation and p-values and Bayesian updating and this and that. It won't do you any good if your head's not right, if your attitude is not right. We're incredibly good at fooling ourselves for all kinds of reasons. And that's why one of the first stories in the book is about an art forgery that fooled the world's greatest art critic. And there's not really a story about statistics at all. It's a story about how expertise is no defense against self-deception. So you need to get your head clear. You need to understand those biases that you have, those filters that are getting in the way of clear thinking. And after you've done that, then I can maybe give you some useful advice as to how to get something really constructive out of these numbers that surround us. So the motivation was to spread the idea of numeracy. And I guess, what did you learn in that journey? What were the lessons that you took away? One you just mentioned, which was, of course, that you had to sort of remove your sort of ego or prior biases from the initial lens of looking at a problem. But what else? 
One of the things that really struck me was how much of the advice is actually not about the numbers, it's about the stuff that surrounds the numbers. So things like useful comparisons. So is, how does this number compare to some other number that we understand? If I'm saying, oh, that the deficit is whatever, you know, a trillion dollars or whatever, that doesn't help to say that the deficit's a trillion dollars. What I need to know is things like, what's the deficit relative to what it was last year or five years ago? What's the deficit relative to, say, the total size of the economy? And what about other deficits in other countries relative to their economy? Or maybe, what's the deficit relative to all government spending? Or maybe, what's the deficit per person? You could just tell it to me in dollars per person in the country. So these are all different ways to provide some context for this number that doesn't really make any sense. So useful comparisons, that's one bit of context. Simple things like, is the number going up or down? That's important. What's the source of the number? That's important. But then one piece of advice that I think I would really emphasize to people who are already quite comfortable with numbers, because it, this is where they trip up, is what is the actual definition? What's the label attached to this number? What was the process that generated it? You have this phrase in the book, premature enumeration. And I, I argue that a lot of people who are, com who are comfortable with statistics suffer from premature enumeration, which is when you grab hold of the numbers because you see the numbers and you're like, great, we're going to stick this into a statistical package or we'll just we'll plot a graph or we'll just com compute some simple ratios or wh whatever it is. We'll plot a trend line, calculate a p-value. And you do all this without stopping to say what was actually being measured or what was actually being counted. And you can really lead yourself astray by doing that. And to give you a specific example, if you think back 15 years to the financial crisis, that's got many causes. But one of the causes was people betting very large sums of money on the output of calculations about risk. So saying, oh, this product has this particular level of risk, or this product has this particular level of risk, because there's some cross-correlation with this other thing, or we've sliced and diced it, or 90% of this product has to go bad before the 10% that we've bought will go bad. And all of these things spit out these calculations that say, this is incredibly safe, there's no way that this will ever go bad. But all of those calculations were based on clever mathematics applied to a measure of risk. And actually, you can't measure risk. You can measure other things. You can measure, for example, historical variability. That's fine. But that's not risk. Not possible. It's just not possible to measure future risk. All you can do is measure some proxy. And so what was happening was huge bets on the basis of what looked like very solid calculations. But in the end, the whole thing was just built on quicksand because the, those initial numbers that were purporting to measure risk never measured risk because you can't measure risk. They measured something else and everything that came afterwards was basically logically fallacious. You couldn't rely on it. And, and there you go. Magic up one financial crisis. And it's all because people didn't ask where did those initial numbers actually come from and what did they actually mean? So this is a little hard and maybe discouraging because you're telling me that, first of all, I've got to get my ego out of the way, which means for people who are hearing that, that they have to take their experience, which is their, their learned lifetime 
accumulated knowledge about the world. And, you know, they have to sort of sublimate that. And then go I would ahead, say they have to, sorry, but they have to use that, that your experience should tell you that actually there are lots of ways in which you can be wrong. But if you're, you're so you are <laughs> too. So it should do and it can do, but you've, you've got, I mean, it's partly just a case of stopping and thinking. It really is partly just a case of pausing because we, when we are very expert, you spot patterns very quickly and maybe just a bit too quickly and count to three and go back and have another look and you might reach a different conclusion. And at that point, your expertise is helping. But sorry, I interrupted. No, I, I was going to say, so there is certainly the bias and ego question. And then there's this reality that you're pointing out, which is science is hard. Well, you know, we had Christy Oshwinden, who, you know, is a uh, famous science journalist, and she talks a lot about how it's just getting positive results is hard. Yeah. Because the data isn't always conclusive, and you can't always prove your hypothesis. And that might be because you don't have the right data, or it might not be, maybe because the data doesn't actually support what you're thinking. So how do you convince people? So as you've gone through the data detective, then how do you then take those problems and those challenges and convince people to still believe? I think the final message of the book is to uh, approach the world and approach the numbers with a spirit of curiosity, which might sound fairly straightforward. Oh yeah, curiosity. We like we all like curiosity, but very often we don't actually we don't behave like we like curiosity. We often like simple answers, or we often like to just win arguments. We like things to go our way. And so we very often grab hold of the numbers thinking, ah, yeah, this is going to help me prove my point. This is good. This is good supporting evidence as like, like legal evidence rather than like scientific evidence. This will help me convince somebody rather than to say the world is a confusing place. The world is a fascinating place. I have questions and maybe the data can help me answer those questions. If that's the spirit with which you approach the data, then uh, obstacles become intriguing mysteries. They become satisfying puzzles. Arguments turn into constructive, exploratory questions. And the, the, what might have seemed like hard work, I think, just it, it's just a lot more. It's a lot more fun. There's um, I quote Orson Welles towards the end of the Data Detective where he says, as a film director, we worry about audiences not understanding things, but we shouldn't worry about that. That's not the problem. The problem is to get them interested. If they're interested, they'll understand anything. And so that when we're looking at these complex questions, the problem is to interest ourselves. Can you actually summon the curiosity to go, I don't actually understand this, I want to know the answer. If you have that spirit, then the rest of what you describe as hard work, yeah, it's hard work in a way, but it's satisfying work as well. And I think that keeps people going. Do you have recommendations or practices around fostering that sense of curiosity? I mean, in the simplest setting, so we have an executive staff that runs the business and often people come into the room and there's some problem that's agendized on the table that we're all there to solve and everybody's got views and issues and ideas and solutions and often the best answers come when you have a spirit of curiosity, but it's hard to get there because of that ego and that agenda and that bias that you come up with. How, are there practices that you can recommend where you can foster that spirit, either amongst groups or individuals? Yeah, I hope so. When you're communicating an idea, 
I think the way to, to foster a spirit of curiosity is to tell a story. Then people want to know what happens next. If you're trying to communicate, say, something about climate change, rather than starting with the science, whatever that means, or some very scary message, maybe tell a story about a scientist making some discovery or having some... That, I think, can be a much more compelling way to get people interested in what would otherwise be this... It's, very, it's a very fraught, loaded subject. That's one possible... If your aim is to communicate that, the storytelling mode is a good one to awaken curiosity. Another mode is to ask questions and to ask genuine questions. Questions to which you think you don't know the answer or you might not know the answer. And if you're asking genuine questions of other people, you're treating them with respect. They may realize they don't know the answer to their own questions, which tends to defuse conflict. Or maybe they do know the answer to the question, in which case you're going to get smarter. So that that question asking is another useful mode. And one final idea I would suggest is just ideas from design thinking. So rather than fixating on the first solution to say, okay, let's generate parallel solutions, let's generate a second solution and a third solution. I'm not a design expert, there are lots of good books on this subject. That's a third way to help generate the, you know, the this sort of parallel thinking and lots and lots of different ideas and getting people curious and exploring rather than converging too early. Yeah, these are all super interesting practices. And it reminds me a little bit of a, especially in the group setting, it reminds me a little bit of a customer meeting I once had. We were going to a rail company in the Midwest and they started every single meeting, even the ones in the office conference rooms with, we we're going to do a safety check in this meeting. And we're going to look around and see if there's any pinch points. And then we're going to look around and see if there are, you know, uh, fall hazards. And we're like, and, you know, I looked around and this is quite unusual because we're just in an office building, not in a rail yard. And so at the time it seemed a little ridiculous, but it, it clearly was a culture setting for them. And, and in this environment, I've often thought, how can we do that without feeling like making people feel like this is some hokey, odd place? But having that set of rules or having that intention or setting that intention seems like a really strong uh, way and, and remembering these rules in, in some way. Yeah, I love that. And it reminds me of a, I, years ago, I visited a nuclear power station because I was trying to figure out whether there was anything we could learn from safety in nuclear power stations to, that could teach us about safety in the financial system. There's this idea that these are, I know it sounds strange, but these are very complex. These are tightly coupled systems. There are some parallels that, that are potentially useful. And I had a sandwich lunch with, well, we were going to have a sandwich lunch with the head of safety and took off my trainers and put on these steel-capped boots to go and visit the turbine hall. And then the lady came in with a trolley with sandwiches and tea and coffee. And uh, so she's like, she's did the catering staff and I'm talking to the head of safety. And the first thing she did, she stopped the trolley and she pointed at my running shoes. And she said, that's a tripping hazard. And she didn't talk to me. She talked, she was talking to the director of safety at the power plant and said, that's a tripping hazard. They need to be moved immediately. And I thought, oh, okay. These guys are actually serious about safety. And from the point of view of curiosity, I mean, it's not, it's not the same thing, but what are the practices that you could have regularly that remind people? So those practices are, we always think about safety. We're always looking for hazards. We work as a team together to spot problems. So what are the practices that with a, with a group of analysts, you can say, remind people, we're always curious. We're always asking questions. 
we don't want to converge on the wrong answer without exploring other possibilities. So what are the practices that we can have together that remind people that it's a safe space to to raise those questions? Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, and I think it, I think it extends to, and I think this is what the brilliance of that setting was, which was that it extends not just to the people doing the analytical work, but to everybody because it's the core of what they do. And in so many interformation enterprises, whether it's a bank or a technology company or the like, I mean, you, you have similar dynamics at play where you're assembling knowledge workers to do something that's, there's no deterministically right answer. Yeah, I think this idea of, because I do think there's a lot of books and yours is a great one in particular that, that sort of convince people and teach people how to think. And it's not always to your point about p-values and conditional probabilities and distributions, but rather about just being calm in the face of information. But then there's the organizational dynamics um, that really make it hard in a group setting to, yeah. to foster that religion. And, yeah. uh, and what, that's one, a, of the, one of the things that I do find fascinating about the recovery trial, the fact that they managed to get a whole organization to buy in at least enough to make it happen. And they didn't have to get every doctor and every nurse in the National Health Service to constantly pay attention to the data, but they had to, they managed to persuade them to install the system and use the system enough to get the data that we needed. And, and that's, that saved millions of lives. Like yeah. And convincing people, I mean, you would think, oh, that's so obvious to do. Like, look, we're in an emergency setting. So let's just convince these people to gather some data because it'll help us. But, you know, while they're fighting this war, probably any change was quite hard to do. Yeah. And people, people are know, really, the people are always busy, but never been busier. But they, yeah, they managed to do it. And it really did make a difference. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, now, you know, I'd love to go back to one of your earliest works because it's, it's the one that, you know, sort of, I think, in some sense, launched your, um, I think it is, maybe it wasn't, but you can tell me about your um, history, which is the undercover economist. And you often refer to yourself as an undercover economist. And I think economics is certainly interesting. Our first episode was with David Epstein, and he talked, or at least one of our first episodes, and he talked about how, you know, he always has this book, Range, and he talks about being a generalist and said, very, very few disciplines prepare you for this range in fact, all the specialized knowledge mostly gets forgotten in his telling, except for economics, which I love to hear because I had economic training as well. T tell it's us about that. It's slightly flattering to us economists, isn't it? But that's, <laughs> I love it's, it. It's how we like to think of ourselves. There's this classic Keynes essay, which is actually an obituary of Alfred Marshall. And Keynes was, you know, Alfred Marshall, great economist, Keynes, great economist. And Keynes is writing this obituary of Marshall and he describes the qualities of a good economist. And I'm afraid he refers to this economist as a he, which is a problem economists have. We need more female economists and we've got some great ones these days. But Keynes says he must be mathematician, historian, statesman, philosopher in some degree. He must understand symbols and speak in words. He must contemplate the particular in terms of the general and touch abstract and concrete in the same flight of thought. No part of man's nature or his institutions must lie entirely outside his regard. He must be purposeful and disinterested in a simultaneous mood, as aloof and incorruptible as an artist, yet sometimes as near the earth as a politician. So... That's that's Keynes on the quality of of, of great economists, and he, he's he clearly has himself in mind. So yeah, I think 
Economists of Keynes's generation had that range. I think economists today don't. We're much more pure maths guys. It makes me think of that Dos Equis commercial of the most interesting man in the yeah, world. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Keynes, uh, yeah, Keynes, I think, clearly thought of himself as the most interesting man in the world. And he, I mean, he wasn't completely wrong. He was a very interesting man, but I suspect he, he had an even higher opinion of himself than everyone else had of him. So yes, there is something of, the, of that range in economics as it should be anyway not necessarily in, in economics as it is. But I also studied philosophy. I studied philosophy and economics at, at university. And before I went to university, we specialized very early in the UK. And I specialized in maths, physics, and English literature. So there's that, there's that constant fence sitting of being interested in communication and poetry and writing, while also getting geeky and being interested in the differential equations and the numbers. Yeah. But I think the, so besides, you know, sort of self-effacing view of, of an economist, there is something useful there, I think. And I think it might, and, and it's a decision science. And, you know, in some sense, helping people to make better decisions is a lot of, or at least think better, is a, a lot of your work. Tell us about this idea of being an undercover economist. What's the ethos of that? Because you often do describe yourself that way. And I think yeah. it's a really helpful way for people to, maybe that description of how you think about yourself is also a way in which many people might want to think about themselves. So I think it's great to hear it. Yeah. So it was you're right. It was my first book. It was the book that launched my career. And as the book was published, I had persuaded the FT to start a column also called The Undercover Economist. So I've been writing that column for 17 years and the, the book was published 17 years ago and they've gone hand in hand. But the original idea was that economists live in the real world. And so while you, as the reader of my book, dear reader, might be looking around the cafe you're in or wherever you are, whatever environment you're in, there might be a person next to you who's an economist and she is seeing the world in a very different way. She is seeing things that you're not seeing. She doesn't look any different to you, but she thinks differently to you and she sees different things because she's an economist. And that was the way I began that book, you know, don the x-ray spectacles and see the hidden patterns in the world. So that, that was the idea. And yeah, economists do see the world differently. I think over the last 20 years, I maybe slightly wound my neck in about the brilliance of economics and start to realize that some of the weird ways economists see the world are just weird and are not necessarily helpful, but they are different. And there's a value in that difference. And some economic ideas, I think, are incredibly powerful. Yeah, I think so too. And it's a really romantic way of defining a profession that I think is more and more useful in a world that's super complex. So super exciting and thoughtful. And what a great conversation. What a great pleasure to have you on the show. I think our audience will really enjoy it. So thank you for taking the time. Oh, it, it's my pleasure. It's very kind of you to, to have invited me. I'm, I'm glad we've been waiting a while to do this. I'm glad we're finally able to do it. Yeah, me too. The world can be chaotic and complex. That chaos makes it super important to be able to think critically and methodically. Tim gave us a formula for how to do this. A curious and humble mindset is key. Your ego has no place in data-driven thinking. But how do we foster curiosity and humility? We need to tell compelling stories and ask thoughtful questions. We should encourage creativity and open-mindedness, and we must admit that we don't know everything. A mind is kind of like a parachute. 
it works best when it's open. So as we explore new avenues and study the topics that intrigue us, we'll start to see the world differently. As Tim said, you could become an undercover economist seeing the world completely differently than the person next to you. Consider the world's greatest artist, Picasso, Dali, Van Gogh, and Frida Kahlo. All of them interacted with the same world, and yet they expressed it so differently in their art. The world would be a dull place without their unique visions, and the same goes for yours. So be curious, ask questions, delight in being mistaken, and then keep learning. Think like an undercover economist, and you'll grow as a data radical. Thank you for listening to this episode, and thank you, Tim, for joining. I'm your host, Satyan Sangani, CEO of Alation. And data radicals, stay the course, keep learning, and sharing. Until next time. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Alation achieved eight top rankings and 11 leading positions in two different peer groups in the latest edition of the Data Management Survey 23, conducted by BARC, the Business Application Research Center. Read the report at alation.com slash BARC 23. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com slash B-A-R-C, then the number 23.